Two weeks ago, last time I was in John, uh, if, you wanna, if you have your Bible, you can turn to the Gospel of John, we talked about the intentionality of Jesus, the intentionality of Jesus, the way that he stayed in Judea until a specified moment, and then the way that he traveled through Samaria to meet with a specific woman. Uh, for those that are visiting, uh, just by way of refresher for the rest of you, we have been looking at the Gospel of John specifically at the life of Jesus, uh, normally I go through a very word-by-word exegetical study approach, and uh, we go through verse by verse. If I were to do the Gospel of John, you know that it would take me probably a decade to get through it if we did that. So we're going a little bit faster. We're looking at the life of Jesus and specifically how we can apply that. Our theme for this year is maturity, growing up into a mature man. We're starting as infants, going up to the toddler stage, child, adolescent, adult, to a mature, or the King James says, perfect man. That's our goal this year. Our theme for this year is to grow up, all of us mature, by looking at the life of Christ through the Gospel of John. What can we glean? Now, this morning, I want to navigate us through the remainder of Jesus' exchange with that woman. We began it two weeks ago, as I said. This was a woman, the outcast. The main focus this morning is on evangelism. John chapter 4. I'm going to start the second half of chapter, or verse 7. John chapter 4, verse 7. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask for a drink? Ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him, I will give him, shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. I've got a lot of verses. 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. The one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. That's about three sermons in that one verse. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Skip on down to verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. 
And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. That's a testimony. Now, once again, again, by way of review, there's a couple things that we see in this section of scriptures. Uh, there's a whole lot in here. I know that's, that's really fast. It gives me, it's really hard. It gives me anxiety doing that many verses in one week. But here's some things that we've already established in previous chapters. Number one, the humanity of Jesus. Jesus, the duality, the, he, he came as God, he set it all aside, he was fully God, but fully man. He was baptized like the rest of us. We see here that he became weary and tired. This is the humanity of Jesus. We see, secondly, there's purposeful statements. We've talked about that in weeks past, and we've talked about the spiritual explanation which he gives, he gave to Nicodemus. So as a refresher, firstly, the humanity of Jesus. He was weary, verse 6. He was thirsty. We talked a little bit about that two weeks ago. These facts ought to connect us with how he lived. He lived as a man. He set an example for how we ought to live as a man so that we would know how to do things. Here's the point. We cannot set aside the humanity of Christ Jesus. It was this very place of him needing water, of needing to drink of water, which sets the bar for the next part of it, the evangelism part of it. Jesus did this as a man. He lived as a man. So the things that he did, we ought to do too. The things that he said, we ought to say under the Spirit's influence too. And as harsh as this may sound, there really are no excuses for us not doing the things that Jesus did. He set an example for us to follow. There, there's no excuses for how little we contribute to the advancement of the kingdom of God. Jesus did it. He said, this is what's possible. Follow after me. If we're not living like him, then we're not living for him. We get tired. Guess what? He got tired too. But even when he was tired, he was still ministering. And this, this, this leads us to another topic of discussion. Jesus was always intentional. He was intentional with every moment, with every word, with everything he did, all his actions, all his statements. Something as simple as, give me a drink. Jesus says this in verse 7, give me a drink. One time when I was a boy, we were celebrating, I believe it was my grandmother's birthday or something. We went out to the Olive Garden. My grandfather, being a very evangelistically minded person, that's important for the story here, the waitress comes over to the table and, you know, they had a, a wine of the, the, the night and said, can I interest you in a wine tasting? And she comes over and my grandfather very quietly quipped, we already have the new wine. And I was so embarrassed. I, I'm, I can still feel the secondhand embarrassment in this moment. I'm sure I turned beet red. And here he was in the middle of Olive Garden, you know, there's all these people around, it was busy explaining on a Friday night what he meant by, we already have the new wine. Well, the thing is, as awkward as that was in the middle of the restaurant, now that I'm older, I've come to realize that he really was just being like Jesus. What would Jesus do? I could totally see Jesus saying that. These are the kinds of things that Jesus did. He was intentional with his speech. The point is, Sharing the gospel doesn't have to be hard. And I've come to realize that 
I would rather be really corny like my grandfather and actually share my faith than hold on to some dignity and never share my faith with anyone. Because that's what it's about. It's, it's about finding ways to connect with people, even if that means I need some clarification on what you meant by new wine. So here in the middle, she's just trying to do her job, poor girl, right? But perhaps he planted a seed. We may not know. Purposeful statements like, give me a drink, or to Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. To Nicodemus, you must be born from above. They provide opportunity. These are stepping stones in Jesus' strategy for evangelism. Now, thirdly, we see that Jesus always jumped right into these spiritual conversations. Verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus goes straight, straight into this spiritual metaphor with this woman, right over her head. We worry all the time about, well, someone so is not going to understand this. I've got to put the gospel into these right words. And yes, we should try to make it applicable and understandable. But if the Holy Spirit says to do something, says to speak something, guess what? He's going to take care of the rest. And if you look at the evangelism techniques and strategy of Jesus, this is what he did. He spoke right over their head, and then he explained what it meant. And those that got it, they got it and came to salvation. And those that did not, we're, we're, we're told about this. this. This should not be strange or foreign to us. You can't perceive and understand the light without the light. And if you're searching for Christ, he's going to give you what you need to get there. And so she says, much like Nicodemus, where can I get some of this special water? She's not understanding. So that I don't have to keep coming back to this well all by myself in the heat of the day. You remember she was the outcast. The ladies, no doubt, of the village, they had already gathered their water for the morning. Here it was in the middle of the day. She's gathering her water all by herself. I don't want to keep coming back here. I'm tired of this. It's hot. Everyone looks at me weird. Where can I get some of that everlasting water? Now remember, this is being John 20, 31. And it's being written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This book of the Bible is supposed to prove the identity of our Savior. We're looking at it how we can live like him. And here's the backdrop. We've gone from Nicodemus, a Jew, a leader among the Pharisees, a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a renowned teacher of the Old Testament law to this Samaritan, a half-breed, a nobody, a woman, a prostitute. And he says the same thing. There's only one who can bring eternal life there is only one in whom belief will grant you eternal life. It doesn't matter if you're a teacher of the law or if you're a rejected sinner of the, the most despicable kind. There's only one way that you will go to heaven. And that's Jesus' approach. Doesn't matter if you're wise. You know, we have a lot of professors in Blacksburg, a lot of really intellectual people. It's a hard place to evangelize. A lot of people think they know more than you because they got some fancy letters at the end of their name. They went to school really long, I think Jesus probably would have handled the professors the same way. Doesn't matter if you've got high IQ or no education at all. There's only one way. And he preached the gospel, regardless of their intellect, regardless of their social status, regardless of their, their monetary value or their assets or any of those things, he treated them the same way. You've got one way to get to heaven. And perhaps that should be our strategy too. 
While Nicodemus did acknowledge that Jesus was a teacher, it was a teacher who had come from God, that was a sign of respect, he felt short of actually believing in Christ. Jesus, remember, from chapter 3, he says, unless you are reborn from above. In this account, the same fundamental issues are present. If the woman at the well is to have eternal life, she must also be reborn from above, just as Jesus required of Nicodemus. But for each one of them, their future depended on who they would come to see Christ Jesus as. For Nicodemus, he left thinking Jesus was a teacher. But this woman bowed in humility and said, I perceive that you are a prophet. And she went to go tell the entire town about what Jesus had told her. The two recipients of the gospel couldn't have been more different, but the message remained the same and the approach consistent. Jesus begins with a very benign statement, give me a drink. They exchange about eternal water, which of course is Jesus' way of talking about salvation, which she did not understand at the time. It's this new, new wine moment of Olive Garden. It's a lead-in of being able to explain how to get to heaven. And Jesus jumps straight then into a spiritual metaphor. Listen, this may not be an exact formula. I'm not saying we need to formulate these things and we need to do these exactly the same way. We have the Holy Spirit. He'll lead you. He'll tell you what to say in the need of the moment, how to proceed, how to, begin, how to continue our conversation or begin the conversation. But this does not have to be hard. It does not have to be difficult. Give me a drink. You know, you can go to somebody who's sitting on a bench. How's your day going? Oh, what are you talking about? Oh, can I tell you some good news today? You ever met someone that was just grumpy? You can, you know, they're walking down the street and you can hear them, see them mumbling. No, they're not, probably not praying in the spirit. They might be, though. You can check with them. Somebody sitting all alone by themselves. Somebody who's, I don't know, bringing, taking your order at a restaurant. Hey, can I pray for you? We're about to bless the food. You got anything you need prayer for? Doesn't have to be difficult. Friday, we had some uh, Mormons come to the door. I've got to give it to them. At least their methods are pretty good. They asked, I was in the office studying, and you know, Brittany answered the door, and she didn't tell me until after they had gone. Uh, she said they had asked if we needed any yard work and stuff done. I don't know if that was a, a judgment about the length of my grass or. But I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing, right? They, they come up, can we do any yard work? They're just like, how can we serve you? It's basically their, their MO. Do you know that the average Mormon on a mission will see three individuals baptized directly by their evangelism efforts? 18 months is a mission. Every six months on average, that's way down from eight. In the 1980s, about 40 years ago, they were seeing eight during their, on average, during their 18-month stints, okay? Now, I, I'm looking around the room. Some of you are like well over 100 years old. If we, saw, if we saw somebody baptized every six months because of our evangelism efforts, that's pretty amazing, right? That's a lot of people. This church would be packed out. Yet, I doubt most of us have witnessed and baptized and seen as a direct, direct result of our evangelism even three people in our whole lifetime. So you may not, you know, we don't agree with what they say. There's some issues. 
But their techniques certainly bring results, and it's not hard. Thursday, I was on my motorcycle. I stopped at a stoplight. I saw the same couple. I described under Brittany, and they were the same ones that came by our place Friday. Apparently, they're out in Giles this week or in Parisburg. They, I was at a stoplight, and uh, he knew that I could hear them, and he said, hey, you want to come to church with us on Sunday? I was like, I'm a pastor of church, a different flavor, though. And he got in the car, no big deal. We smiled and waved. How easy is that? Isn't that a great line? Hey, do you want to come to church with me on Sunday? How many of you ever tried that? Piece of cake, right? That's something we can do. Jesus' strategy is not complicated. Engage naturally. Give me a drink. I'm thirsty. And quickly segue into a spiritual metaphor. Now, when his metaphor was not understood by this woman, Jesus spoke out. This is when he goes, no doubt, by the Holy Spirit. Here's a word of knowledge. Engage naturally, spiritual metaphor, he jumps right into a word of knowledge. Now, this is not the first time we've seen this in the Gospel of John. Anyone remember the other? John chapter 1, Nicodemus. Remember he comes to him? Is there anything good that comes out of Nazareth? Jesus is like, oh, before you even, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Oh, and then he recognized, right? He got this word of knowledge. He pictured, Jesus pictured Nathaniel, excuse me, sitting under the fig tree. And one of the things that I think we should take away from the life and ministry of Christ is how naturally he spoke out these divine words. You know, we don't need to make it a big deal. Oh, thus saith the Lord, I, I, I see you've got Five husbands, actually, you know, it was just natural. He just had the word. The Holy Spirit gave Christ the word. Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under the fig tree already. I know who you are. You're amazed by these things? Oh, you've answered correctly. You don't have a husband because the one you're now with is not even married to you. Just spoke the word out very naturally. We don't need to make a scene. What's a word of knowledge? Logonosis, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, what Paul writes, logonosis. I'll tell you what it's not first. It's not natural knowledge. It's not education. It's not intellect. It's not the gift of knowledge. A lot of people confuse that. They look at the gifts, the nine that are listed by Paul in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. It's it's not the gift of knowledge. Listen, we need to understand that. It's the gift of word of knowledge. Okay, it's a specific word. There's no such thing as a spiritual gift of knowledge. You might think, oh, I've got the gift of knowledge. I'm really smart. You might read all the books, and you've got a perfect memory like some sort of freak savant, and you can just remember every page number of everything you've ever read. Great. Hats off to you. That's not the word of knowledge, okay? It's not teaching. It's not the conveyance of natural knowledge. That's not the gift of word of knowledge either. It's not fortune-telling. You know, here's something we need, to, we need to remember. The devil often will try to imitate and counterfeit God's gifts, and he will try to make fortune-telling as seem as a legitimate real thing, so people believe in those. You know, if a fortune-teller knows anything supernaturally at all, you can be sure that it's not the supernatural spirit of God that gives him that knowledge. Now, this gift is not making good guesses or having a good imagination. I think a lot of people, listen, I'm not saying that there isn't legitimate place for this. I've been in services. I know, I've known people. I've heard stories about people 
you know, they're going to a grocery store and they get a partial word of knowledge, their elbow just starts aching randomly, right? And they know, I don't have an elbow problem. And so they just start, they drop what they're doing and they go looking through the store for who has an elbow issue so that they can pray for them. They are so in tune with the Holy Spirit that when they get something that is out off, they knew in their spirit that God wanted them to go find that person and pray for them for healing, okay? I'm not saying that those kinds of things can't happen, but I also want you to understand that, you know, if there's a crowd of 20,000 people and someone says, I've got a word that, you know, you've got some, maybe some ankle pain and you come forward for prayer, it might be a word of knowledge. It could be, but it also could just be really high statistical normalcy, right? That 20,000 people, there might be someone with ankle pain there. Now, if the Holy Spirit tells you to speak it out, it could absolutely be God. I'm not trying to detract from that. I know it's happened. I've seen it happen. I've been a part of uh, revival services and things like that where words have come forth like that. My dad operates very much that way all the time. He'll be in service, and the words will come forward, and people will come forward, they'll lay hands, and they'll see healing. But we need to understand that just because someone says something that is unique doesn't necessarily mean it is God behind it. Now, it could be, okay? It's not profound knowledge of God or of God's word. Louis and Mady know the word. They study the word. Okay? That's not the same thing as a word of knowledge. Those are good and those are necessary things. Sometimes while I'm preaching, the Holy Spirit will suddenly give me an understanding of a passage in the scripture that I've never really seen before. I'll be speaking something out and it's not even until after I make the statement or the thought that my brain will catch up with what the Spirit just spoke through me. It's a weird phenomena. I can't really explain it much differently than that. I'll say something, and then it computes. You're like, wow, that was good, right? I better write that down. This is the Holy Spirit in operation while I'm in teaching, but it's not necessarily that gift in operation. What the word of knowledge is, is the bestowal of certain facts from the mind of God, which you have no business knowing without the divine intervention. Someone sitting under a fig tree. How would he know that? The Holy Spirit gave it to him. How would Jesus know that this woman had been with five men and the sixth, the one she's not actually married to? This impartation of certain information, whether it's past or present, it can come through a dream, a vision, a word, a, a feeling, an impression, or even an audible voice. That's what a word of knowledge is. It's only a word or a portion of what God knows. He knows everything. God is omniscient. He knows everything, past, present, and future. And he gives you a little piece of it that is necessary for that need of moment. In this case, to see the salvation of a whole Samaritan village. Think of it as a piece of information that you know is fact. You know to be true, but you have no business knowing it. Jesus used that regularly in evangelism. That's what we see according to the Gospel of John. Remember, these things are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you may have life in his name. John 20, 31. I am writing to you that you would understand that this Jesus who we saw and we dis were discipled under, we lived life under, was in fact the Son of God. That's what he's saying. This is a sign pointing to his identity. Make it relevant to us in our own evangelism efforts. How will the world know 
that Christ Jesus that you speak of is real. You confirm it, the word, the gospel, through signs and wonders. That's one of the beautiful things about the Holy Spirit's working in and through our lives. It's not for our own benefit, our own power. It's to bring glory and honor to the one who's above. Jesus used it regularly in evangelism. 1 Corinthians 12, 31. Don't get weirded out on me. This is just a Bible verse. Just reading scripture here. Earnestly desire the greater gifts. You aren't going to operate in all of the gifts. That's what the word reminds us. All the time. But at bare minimum, you at least ought to be asking God for these gifts. To help you witness like he did. 2 Kings. I'm going to take the time to do it. 2 Kings, if you've got your Bible. It's a great little nugget here. I love this little nugget. 2 Kings chapter 4. I wasn't sure I was going to go here, but... While we're speaking of the Holy Spirit, I digress a little bit from evangelism. 2 Kings 4, verse 25. I'm going to start in the second half. When the man of God saw her, this is the Shunammite woman, at a distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant. Gehazi's Elisha's servant. He's the prophet. He's taken up the mantle after Elijah has been taken up. He says, Behold, there is the Shunammite. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And she answered, It is well. When she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her, and the Lord, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, it's on a personal name basis. He says, and Yahweh has hidden it from me and has not told me. That's all right. <laughs> I wasn't sure if it was the same verse, but I don't think it was. <laughs> I was just going to let it talk, but... All right, let me read that again. At the end of 27, he says to her, let her alone for her soul is troubled within her. For Yahweh has hidden it from me and has not told me. Imagine being so in tune with the Holy Spirit, with Yahweh God, that you noticed when you didn't get a word of knowledge. Right? Hang on a second, Gehazi, something's off here. That's what I want in my life, is that, okay, someone comes up to you and is like, they're, you know, they're clinging to your ankles and you just be like, oh, I missed something God was trying to communicate. Well, you know, God obviously did this on purpose, but I, I just love that that was Elisha's uh, response, was that he was so used to God speaking to him that that was the reaction. That's how we ought to be. This is what Jesus was doing. He says, for I do not speak on my own, but the Father himself has sent me, has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. That's John 12, 49. I want to be so tapped into the Holy Spirit that we get words of knowledge right in the middle of our conversations with the lost, don't you? That's what Jesus is doing. He's giving this woman the gospel, but the word of knowledge is giving credence to what he's saying. You tell me what's more believable. You see a billboard on the way home, right? It says the winning numbers are 13, 46, 27. 
Or after I recount everything that you've done and ate in the last 24 hours, I'm like, hey, by the way, the winning numbers are this. Right? You start to believe what someone says if, there, if there's some sort of sign that doesn't really make sense. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's speaking something that he has no business or no way of knowing without divine help. And she recognizes this must be the move of God. It makes me think of Mark 16, 20. Signs and wonders, confirming the word. So Jesus brings up these six men in her life, and he, she realizes that something's different about him. Nicodemus, well, he calls Jesus a teacher, which is a title of honor. But this outcast, she recognizes that he is a prophet of God. She figures it out. Well, I've got a chance to ask this man one thing. Which, what would I ask? So I'm going to ask about where worship ought to be. Remember, you know, at first glance, it might seem like she's just changing the subject. She doesn't like all the pressure on her. A lot of people think that and say, oh, she's just uncomfortable. I don't necessarily know that that's what's going on. Remember, she's an outcast. She's not allowed, most likely, to, to worship at, on the, the Mount of Gerizim. She certainly wasn't as a Samaritan, as a prostitute, if they knew, to be allowed in Jerusalem to worship at the temple. Remember, the Samaritans had made their own temple. We talked about this two weeks ago. And so she's trying to figure out, well, well, if you are a prophet from God, then certainly you can answer this question, how can I even worship? Where's the right place to worship? So Jesus could settle this once and for all, and he says something a little bit different than what we might expect. He doesn't say the Jews are right, the Samaritans are wrong, men must worship in Jerusalem. Because that was the case for the time being. He said the time is coming. He tells her about the future of something that's going to happen. He met her where she was. He knew that under the current law, until his work was done on the cross, she wouldn't be allowed to worship him. And that the worship also at Gerizim wouldn't be accepted it right either. He said, well, it's coming from the Jews. Jesus is correcting a little bit, but he moves right beyond it and gets to the heart of the matter and says, Hey, I want to give you something better. There's a time coming when it's not going to be either place. See, God is spirit, and those who must worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I don't know if you remember, but in the first chapter of John, Jesus indicates to Nathaniel that with his coming, things would change. In verse 51, he alludes to it, chapter 1. Men and God would no longer meet in a certain designated place but in certain designated person, and that was the promised Messiah. He's now this mediator between heaven and earth. He's the one who comes that you should worship, and this being the case, it was pointless to continue on in this debate. Jesus was in flesh. He was the person through whom men must worship. Now, the problem was that the Samaritans thought that they could worship God in their own way, and the Pharisees thought that they had to do it their own pharisaical way, and Jesus says no to both. Nicodemus, it's not by the way you're worshiping, you've got to be reborn. It's not going to be here at Gerizim. That's not how you're going to worship either. He said, a time is coming when you worship in spirit and in truth. We don't worship according to the traditions of men. We don't worship according to the basic principles of the world. That's the Samaritans. We worship according to Christ, Colossians 2.8. Now, in order to worship in truth, we must know the word of God. We must know what is in truth. Amen? You must read the Word. You must find out what's in the Bible. We must continually renew our minds 
to the Word of God by spending, spending time in it. When our minds are renewed to what He says and what His truth is, then we'll be able to come and worship Him in truth. That's what it means. I believe the, the Bible is a foundation for our worship, to worship Him in the right way. And in order to worship Him in spirit, I'll leave you with this to consider before Wednesday. Again, this is new for us, but we're going to revisit Sunday's message and we're going to pull out little pieces and hopefully dig in deeper. If you've got questions, Wednesdays are going to be a great time to talk about them. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is what? Your spiritual service of worship. So one aspect of this pure worship is only possible when we allow God to live through us. The Holy Spirit is a necessity for worshiping in spirit and in truth. Now, I wasn't here last week. I heard worship was wonderful. I think it's great when, as I said, brothers dwell together in unity, and that's what we experienced last week. I heard worship was anointed. It was good. That's wonderful. Isn't it awesome when you can come together and you can ignore things that normally divide you and you can focus on Christ? I'm not saying you can't worship on your own. You can absolutely worship on your own. Go do it. Put a CD on. You don't even have to put a CD on, but go do it. Lay down, worship, and be with God. Be alone with God. That's what it's about. But when we come together, there's something different that happens in the atmosphere of our voices all becoming as one. There's a spiritual blessing in unity of the Spirit. There's a, spiritual, there's a blessing of being unified in the Spirit is what I'm trying to say. So Jesus is making this tremendous statement. He's, a, he's telling this woman by alluding about the Holy Spirit. Now remember, the disciples have gone into town to get some food. They don't even have this teaching, this doctrine yet. Right? He's telling them about the Holy Spirit who is to come, and they don't even, they're not even sharing and partaking of this. Jesus has perhaps one moment with the Samaritan woman. We don't know the, what's going to happen in the next three years. So Jesus takes now the time to tell her about the time. And, and my point is that he, he dovetails the message perfectly to each individual person where they are. This is how we ought to be with evangelism. There's the same sort of method, if you will, but by allowing the Holy Spirit to guide our lips, he, 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 he knows that something is unique about this. This woman is gravitating. She's recognized me as a prophet. She may never get to be able to worship if I don't speak it now. So Jesus, to a Samaritan, speaks of proper worship. The disciples are kept in the dark about this and lots of other things until a point in time. We're going to look at one next week. Lots of things went over their head. Why? Remember, they, they don't have the, the spirit yet. Eventually, Jesus is going to breathe on them. And then when he goes and ascends, upper room, you know the story. Jesus is making this tremendous statement to a Samaritan, not even a keeper of the law, not a Jew, not a Pharisee, not one of his disciples, a female half-Jew prostitute, and he speaks of the Holy Spirit's work. Now, Nicodemus wasn't ready to accept Christ as Messiah, this woman was, but each exchange of this woman brought her closer to faith, and they moved from literal drinking of water to spiritual water, and now her grasp of Jesus continues to grow until she trusts in him as the Messiah. Now, spoiler, we're not done with Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. 
The difference is he comes to faith very slowly and somewhat reluctantly, whereas this woman at the well seems to much more quickly grasp the issues and trust in Jesus as the Messiah. And there's a takeaway there for us in evangelism. Guess what? Some people are not going to receive the gospel right away. Some people might not receive it at all. The Pharisees didn't receive it. Nicodemus, it took a lot of time. Your job, as much as you might think this goes against your thinking, you know, go against the, the way that it ought to be, is not to convert. Your job, in some sense of it, hang with me, your job is to preach the gospel and allow the Holy Spirit to do the convicting and bring them into salvation. Okay? Plant the seed. Someone else might water. Someone else might have planted it now. You're watering, but God is going to give the increase and bring them to salvation. Nicodemus wasn't ready. Some that you preach to won't be either. May never be. Now this poor outcast of the city, after she receives the gospel of Christ Jesus, she did something amazing. Let's look at verse 27 again. I'm not even there. John 4, all the way in the Old Testament. John chapter 4, verse 27. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. What a time to be a woman, huh? <laughs> Not amazed that he was speaking with a prostitute. Not amazed that he was speaking with a Samaritan. Out of all the things that they had an issue with, they were amazed that he was speaking with a woman. Talk about a terrible time to be a woman. And here Jesus went after her specifically. I have needs to go through Samaria. The disciples came, they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see the man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him, Jesus. That we would grow up and be a more mature man. John chapter 4, there's a lot of great things in this chapter. We're not done with it. Maybe one or two more weeks on some of the passages, sections we skip. But in looking at Jesus' interaction with this woman at the well, one thing is abundantly clear to me. It is not difficult to share faith. Let's not make it difficult. Let's make it an easy thing and allow the Holy Spirit to guide us in our words.